Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 106 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today we're arguing with John Tobin, it's friendly arguing, I promise, Yep. about whether lawyers should learn to code, whether disruption in the legal industry is a myth, whether lawyers can even innovate, and the future of law practice. Today's podcast is sponsored by Spotlight Branding. Learn how they use the internet to make all of your law firm marketing and business development more profitable by visiting spotlightbranding.com slash lawyerist. Today's podcast is sponsored by FreshBooks, which is ridiculously easy to use and packed with powerful features. Try it now at freshbooks.com slash lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists and it's smart, charming receptionists who are perfect for small firms. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. So today, John Tobin and I are basically starting some friendly arguments about a variety of technology subjects. And that sort of prompted me to want to do what I often do when lawyers come to me to ask about technology things or innovation things or whatever, is to say, hold on, like what is the problem that you're trying to solve? And I think that comes up a lot where lawyers... Like many people, you know, I don't want to just make this all about lawyers, but it is a specific problem that we see in the legal industry where lawyers just want an answer. And there's this hilarious irony that (laughs) lawyers come to us wanting the simple silver bullet answer when they spend all day every day advising their clients on the fact that solving complex problems requires complex answers with nuance and maybes, and yet when they want to know about going paperless or practice management software or how to do fees and billing, they just want the answer and they want it to be simple. And obviously, it's not everyone, but it's very common. We see it every day. And I think it's really hilarious that people who understand complexity and nuance in their work don't adopt it themselves. Yeah. You know, we, we, for the last three weeks, we had been doing a series of presentations and webcasts locally for computer security and technology. And we had a really enthusiastic lawyer who was tuning in and was communicating with me after each webcast. And after the last one, he asked me some questions about security and what should he do. And I said, well, hold on, back up. Like, have you done a threat model? What does your threat model look like? And he said, oh, well, I just think, you know, the threat model for every law firm is pretty much the same. And which is a a dangerous thing to think actually, because it's not true. But the thing is like, until you know what your threat model is, you don't know what your problem is. And you don't know if any of the things you're considering will solve it. Whereas if you have put that thought in and that work in, then the answers just kind of present themselves. And that's true among so many things. I mean, I know so many lawyers who want to adopt practice management software because they're disorganized. Or go paperless in order to clean up their files. Yep. Or they hate Outlook uh, and they want to switch to something else because it will solve all their problems. And it's just, you know, uh, if you're disorganized, practice management software isn't an answer to that. No. In fact, (laughs) it might make things worse because you'll be using it wrong or you go go paperless and have messy online files, which is no better. Yeah. I mean, the answer to being disorganized uh, to the problem of disorganization is to get organized, to figure it out. And practice management software might play a role in that. 
Uh, and I'm, I'm certainly, you know, guilty of new tools make me more committed to, to things like organizational schemes. But, you know, the, the answer is not to just adopt something shiny and new and, and, or to ditch something that isn't shiny and new just because you haven't taken the time to fully understand it. Like lawyers hating Microsoft Word just because they haven't taken the time to learn how to use it properly. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think part of the issue is stepping back for a moment to plan out your goals and needs for your firm and to recognize that all technology tools are just tools. And so first you have to answer the question of what problem needs to be solved. And doing that requires a little bit of deep thought on where am I going? What are the needs and workflows of my practice? What kind of firm am I trying to build and with whom? Um, And then you can get to questions about should I be a Mac or PC or how should I structure my files in Dropbox or Outlook or whatever? Yeah, like any time you are dissatisfied with your existing technology stack or processes or employees or whatever, stop and ask yourself that question. What is the problem that I'm trying to solve and why can't I solve it with the tools I have right now or the people or the processes or the office space or whatever it is? And then once you've identified the problem in the same way that you would do for your client's legal problem... Then you can start thinking through, do I need new tools? Do I need new stuff, new people, new uh, to move, whatever? Um, and then you can start working towards the solution to that. Though, to be clear, it isn't always you. There is actually a whole bunch of garbage law practice software, st- especially stuff that was <laughs> developed 20 or 30 years ago that your firm hasn't updated recently. Yeah. I that mean, is actual garbage and it's not your fault. Yeah. No, that that's absolutely true. But sometimes even sticking with that, I would say, is often... Not often, but sometimes an okay decision. So, that's sort of a preface, but also sort of unrelated to my conversation with John Tobin, which I think you're going to enjoy. John and I had a lot of fun just geeking out over a bunch of subjects. And here's that conversation now. My name is Jonathan Tobin. I'm a lawyer in Los Angeles. Um, I have a law firm called Council for Creators with one partner. Uh, We work for a lot of creative businesses, so that's everybody from musicians to artists to software developers to designers. And one of the key parts of our practice is we have a subscription legal model where people pay um, a set price a month to get legal advice and basic document review. Um, Our practice has been around for about a year as a partnership, and I was practicing a couple of years solo prior to that. So... Well, let me start at the beginning. Uh, you are interpreting creative quite loosely then if you're going everyone right. from software developers to, you know, actors, I assume. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's really, I mean, we're in Los Angeles, so you have a lot of people who do a lot of different things, um, things that I wouldn't have predicted prior to starting this practice. So from the outset, we wanted to be sort of broad. We wanted to make sure we can encompass everybody who might have needs to set up a business or um, deal with intellectual property. We do only transactional work. So our, our goal is to help people set up a business to be successful. Very cool. I, tell me, uh, you started out solo and then you took on a partner. Correct. Um, give me, uh, how, did, how did that happen? How did you find your partner and decide to partner up? Yeah, so uh, essentially you know, my background and my sort of interest is intellectual property. And so, you know, I noticed I had a few areas of weakness. Um, one of them was sort of corporate law, so, you know, the corporate side of things. So I would from time to time get requests, you know, hey, can you help me set up a corporation or issue stock or something? 
Um, because I didn't know how to do it, I would often bring in uh, my current partner, Chung, to sort of help me with that and vice versa. He would have a client who needs a trademark and he would call me. So after a while of sort of um, co-counseling on projects, we, we sort of said, hey, would it make more sense if we became a partnership? Since both of us were doing um, slightly different things, but for the same sort of client base. So once we decided that, it took us a few months to sort of decide how we were going to work together and how our partnership would go. And so um, from there, it's been, you know, it, it's been reasonably successful. And and so how does the partnership work? Because everybody does it a little bit differently. So I'm curious how you what the arrangement is for fee sharing or or whatever. Yeah, one one of the things that I think you know was key that that I think really made things work, and this took us a while to figure out how we we're going to do this, is we essentially you know split fees fifty fifty. You know, so if there's ever you know a partnership drive, it's, it's even. So you know we don't track okay who brought this client or how many hours did you go on this client. We we trust each other to sort of do the best we can. Uh, on the things that we do well. Each of us have strengths and weaknesses, not just in legal, but also in actually running the business. And so I, I feel like, and, you know, I think we both feel that, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, bearing the workload or benefiting the business, we both do about an equal share. So, and how long have you been partnered up? One year. Awesome. And and I assume it's gone fairly, well, you, you couldn't say it hasn't been successful because you might hear this podcast. Yeah, and, and, and also <laughs> if it wasn't successful, I think, we, you know, we just, you know, we quit and, and go our separate ways. But yeah, it has been. And I think that, you know, both of us, um, you know, come from creative backgrounds. So we have a lot of ideas and a lot of ways that we want to sort of see our partnership evolve. And, you know, it's nice that we're, we're you know, sort of in sync on that kind of stuff. So I'm curious how you see that evolving over time. I mean, what, I guess, how do you make it work when you're just splitting the fees 50-50? There has to be some understanding of like, equity of effort in, in that. And so I'm curious, like, what is it about your professional relationship with your partner that makes that happen? Um, I think it's, it's, you know, honestly, I think it's trust. I think it's trust that um, both of us are, are sort of giving our best. And, you know, we're both fairly evenly matched in terms of ability. So, um, you know, obviously, it's really hard to quantify a lot of things. And I think that one of the reasons we went 50-50 is we heard so many stories of partnerships that went sideways, because there was an argument over you know, sort of who did more this month or who mm-hmm. brought in more clients or, oh, I brought the client, but I, you know, but you closed it. And so who gets what? And I think getting bogged in that, bogged down in that is a mistake. Maybe it works for some people, but I wasn't really into sort of, you know, keeping tables of who originated a matter and who closed a matter and how many hours did you bill? I mean, we look at our hours and, and you know, every month, you know, in terms of billing, we both bill about the same thing. Some months more, some months less. Um, you know, we both go to the you know same amount of events. We both put the same amount of effort into marketing. I mean, it may not be exactly 50-50, but it's close enough where, you know, that difference isn't really worth arguing over. What do you think you do? Um, I'm just going to ask you to speculate rampantly here, but um, what if what do you think you do if your partner got or you got in an accident and were laid up for a couple of months and could hardly bill anything or decided to have a kid and had to yeah. take some time off? What Do you think you would reassess that fee or do you think you guys would decide you know what that's why we have a partnership is to hold each other up i, I think it's more the uh, the latter i think you know the, that, that's really one of the reasons why we have a partnership is uh, you know since we've been partners you know what either one of us might have gone on vacation for a few days or for a week and it's really nice to have somebody sort of back tending the business and, and we try to plan ahead so you know if, if there was an accident obviously you can't plan for that but I'd like to think that um, I could handle everything and, 
vice versa. I'd like to think that uh, my partner could handle everything if that came up. But, you know, for things that are planned, you know, maybe one of us is working late um, the week before to, to get all their matters done so that if I'm the only one here, um, I'm not sort of having to deal with two sets of clients. So um, you said you do subscription pricing, which was one of my favorite experiments right. that I did with my firm. Do you do that with all your clients? That's the only way you bill or are you available no. at other rates? Yeah, we, we do the standard legal model. I mean, from day one, we started with you know hourly billing, flat fees, both of which are fairly standard in our kind of legal practice. Yeah. Um, but we wanted to try something new. So, you know, it, we started it sort of as a pilot program and then it sort of grew out from that. Um, a lot of people use the sort of standard model in conjunction with our subscription program. So, um, you know, I, I find that helps because, you know, with the subscription, we find that we have um, a sort of more consistent relationship with our clients. So we can actually be proactive and say, hey, you know, we talked a few months ago about, you know, X, Y, Z. Maybe it's time to do your trademark now. You know, so we kind of get to know our clients and a lot of the people we work with, we really know. I feel like we really know them because they're not, they're not afraid to call us because, they don't, you know, they're not afraid of some bill. So how many of your clients are on subscription versus not? Is it like half or 75% or what? Um, I would say, I mean, honestly, I'd say, you know, of our clients, maybe about, um, about a third. It's kind of hard to tell because we have a lot of one-off clients, a lot of people who will come to us just for a trademark or, or just to set up an LLC and we may never hear from them again. Um, and we have like a pretty consistent set of clients who don't have any interest in the subscription model. I mean, and it might be that their needs are, you know, are such that regardless of anything else, we're going to have to put a lot of time into the work. So it wouldn't be, it wouldn't make sense for us or for them to be on the subscription model. So I'm, now I'm going to stop talking about your firm and I want to uh, okay. visit something, not not that you have to stop entirely, but uh, <laughs> but I wanted to talk about something that is the reason that I invited you to be on the podcast, which was a sort of uh, legal internet argument broke out over whether or not lawyers should learn to code. And you wrote sort of a, a nice summary of the various viewpoints and, and wrapped it up nicely. And I, I thought it was worth revisiting because mm -hmm. we've talked about it, um, but we haven't really confronted it head on with somebody who maybe knows something about it. And so I, I kind of right. wanted to revisit that. Do you like, there are a couple, there are two sides, at least maybe three or four. Eddie Hartman uh, of LegalZoom thinks, no, of course not. Lawyers shouldn't learn to code. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Uh, David Colarusso thinks, you know, it's a useful skill to have. Maybe lawyers should learn to code as just sort of a general curiosity about how the world works and to add another tool to their lawyer's toolbox. I hope I'm summing him up fairly. Uh, and I think Maybe. others like Dan Lear, Vavo, and, and others have, have weighed in with various shades of all that. Yeah. What's your kind of, what's your take on it? Well, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, in general, I think the general perspective I have is it's going to vary from person to person. Um, you know, if you were just to say, should lawyers learn to code, the answer might be different depending on A, the kind of practice, and then B, you know, the sort of level of interest that you have in coding. Because, you know, I, I think it might be a mistake to try to learn to code if you have no interest in it. If, if you <laughs> yeah. simply hate every minute of doing it, I mean, this is just my opinion, that, there's, you know, don't do something that you hate if you can help it. You know, if you had to, fine, do it. But, you know, if, you know, if you're making a good living as a lawyer, um, and you absolutely hate coding, I, I might say, well, don't do it. But if you're sort of interested in innovating or if you're interested in building new tools for your practice, um, you know, it might be good to learn to code. And by that, I mean, actually, like writing something um, in a programming language. But I think also getting familiar with what code can do 
and sort of the purpose of code. I, I mean, I, I'd say for most lawyers and maybe most lawyers listening, just understanding, you know, what technology does, what software actually does. And then, you know, you could actually hire someone else. I mean, lawyers, you know, most lawyers have an hourly rate that's higher than most programmers. So if you think of it just from an economic standpoint, it's actually more economically efficient to hire a, a good programmer than to try to do it yourself sometimes. I guess a part of maybe maybe what we're really having a discussion about is we're questioning the the sort of binary that there are there are people who build software and there are people who use software. Right. Um, and lawyers are software users, albeit not very skilled mm-hmm. users in, in too many cases, but, but some are, sure. are just skilled users. Uh, and so why cross the line into building software? And I, I guess maybe what this whole conversation is about is, is that the right paradigm? Should we really be thinking that coding is really just an advanced way to solve the same kinds of problems that you might solve with software, but that you could solve better if you can just customize your own solution? It's like, I mean, the jump from putting an equation in an Excel spreadsheet to um, building a short uh, JavaScript app for a website or uh, a, a small Python script uh, app for your to, to solve a problem that may or may not relate to your directly to your client work. Um, it's actually a, a smaller leap than many people realize, I think. Yeah. And, and you can, you know, there's a, what's, what's great nowadays, if somebody really does want to learn to code, there are a lot of resources out there and there's a lot of places you can go to ask or to learn or, um, you know, I mean, I mean, if I think if I didn't know how to code, I would probably, you know, do something like take a course at General Assembly because, you know, there are a lot of parts of coding that I think are hard to understand and can be actually kind of boring mm-hmm. to learn, you, you know, and I, and I think you sort of need someone to help you through those, those parts, but it can be rewarding. I mean, in the sense of, you know, if you're a lawyer and you're looking to innovate, I think it helps you be able to iterate rapidly. So, you know, even if you do hire a programmer, um, to be able to get in there under the hood and sort of change things or tweak things, I think that's even a good way to learn how to program. Is just to just to sort of know enough to get in there and sort of you know change something small. I mean that's honestly how a lot of programmers learn. You know they'll see a piece mm-hmm. of software and they'll be like, hey, we can change that. I mean if it's just a JavaScript that you know um, maybe does some does something that you like, you can download the JavaScript. Change it. Oh, I see. If you change that variable, then it changes the color or whatever. So um, that's often a good way. And that, honestly, that's what is meant by hacking. You know, you're getting into something right. and just sort of um, tweaking it. You know, pulling it, not necessarily pulling it apart, but sort of looking inside, trying to figure out how it works. And I think if you do that enough, then you sort of you know, form the basis for becoming a programmer if you're interested in sort of you know either getting formal training or just giving the formal training to yourself. Well, and I guess I you know I, I was an English major, so which is, you know, uh, we we maintain that being an English major is a useful thing to be because it teaches you how to learn and helps you have a broader understanding of the world. And so mm-hmm. maybe that's why I have the same feeling about software development, which is that I th- I think if you learn how to set up and configure um, your computer on Linux or you take a JavaScript development course at Codecademy, you yeah. will have a greater understanding of the array of tools available to you and how the internet works and and by having that, you'll just have a better idea of what's possible so that when you take a look yep. at your practice and you think, you know what, my business, my, my law practice would really be better if I could do this, then you'll know that that is possible and you might even have an idea of how you'd start building it. And so you can manage a team of software developers who can right. do it more efficiently. I, I guess I guess that's maybe where I come down on it is kind of like I have the English major um, it's just good to learn. You should read Shakespeare and then go take JavaScript, I guess. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're. I think you're right. I mean, I think that you know you can. You need to learn. I think if you are interested in, in coding or interested in software development, but maybe you don't want to commit to becoming a full blown programmer. Um, I think that if you were to learn enough where you can actually speak with a programmer or you know sort of communicate your ideas in a language that a programmer will understand, then um, that's 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 helpful. And that might be as far as you need to go. Another thing that I think um, is helpful to learn how to code or learn how to do technology things is. Just understand, uh, you know, how APIs work or how you can integrate sort of two third party products together, get them communicated. Mm, yeah. Using a tool like Zapier or, or something like that. Well, and I, I, I'm going to plug lawyers here because uh, David Colarusso put together a tutorial on how you can build a really basic bot on Twitter that takes advantage of yeah. various APIs, which is, I think, a pretty good place to go to get started with that. Yeah. But, John, if you had to pick, like, if people are listening and they're like, well, I'm I'm ready for whatever reason. I want to I want to dip my toes in the water. Um, I, my recommendation is usually to take like the beginner's JavaScript course at Code Academy. Right. Do you have a different recommendation for what people should do for their their first dip their toe in the water of coding? I think these days you're right. I think JavaScript is a good start. I mean, you know, when I first started coding, it was just sort of like it, it was very basic. But now, I mean, it's it's gone so far where you have things like you know that I don't even know about, like server side JavaScript and all these other things and I think it also teaches you the, the sort of principles of programming, like things like modularity, you know, where you're sort of taking functions and building them out and then, you know, sort of having a, you know, a nice clean way of communicating between these functions. And I think just getting into that mindset, I, I think, of, of breaking problems down into these discrete functions, if you were to learn JavaScript, you'd certainly get into that mindset. And I think that's key to becoming a good programmer. So we need to take a few minutes to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I'm going to start an argument. You're investing time and money to grow your law firm. But what if you could make all of your marketing and business development work better? Spotlight Branding works exclusively with solo and small law firms. They create the internet foundation for their clients, which increases the return on their marketing investment by 2x, 5x, or more. Whether you develop business primarily through networking and referrals, by running ads on the radio or on the internet, or whatever the case may be, Spotlight Branding can create an internet presence for your law firm which will make all of your marketing work better. Spotlight branding services include law firm website design, email newsletter management, social media marketing, and more, all designed to help your law practice generate a higher return on the time and the money that you're investing into your marketing. Visit spotlightbranding.com lawyerist to see how they can help your firm stand out from the crowd and make 2017 your most profitable year ever. So you're racing against the clock to wrap up three client projects, prepping for a meeting later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to modern life as a small firm lawyer. The working world has changed. With the growth of the internet, there's never been more opportunities for the self-employed. To meet this need, FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. The all-new FreshBooks is not only ridiculously easy to use, it's also packed full of powerful features. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds, set up online payments with just a couple of clicks, and get paid up to four days faster. See when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to the guessing games. FreshBook is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. 
As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone. Which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. And we're back. So I, I don't actually know if we're going to argue about this, but <laughs> when, I, when, I said, uh, when I said, hey, what else should we talk about on this podcast? You said you wanted to talk about disruption in the legal industry um, yeah. and, and you used capital letters around a lot of those words and I wanted to call bullshit. I don't think that okay. disruption is a word that applies well to the legal industry. So that's, I'm trying to start an argument with you. So tell me, tell me sure. if I'm wrong. Tell me why I'm wrong about that. Well, I mean, I would say that, I mean, at least in theory, disruption can apply to anything. I mean, and I think, first of all, we, we should take a step back <laughs> and define what we mean. What is, what do we mean? What do we mean by disruption? Everybody seems to have a different definition or, you know, the definition kind of varies. And so, you know, what does that actually mean? And so to me, that means it's, it's simply that you're, you know, you might be changing, um, sort of disrupting the market. So that might mean that you're taking, um, you know, you're creating a product that might replace a different market, you know, like, or, or something that does, you know, the job that was traditionally done by a different provider, and then you're doing it yourself. I mean, it's hard to describe what it means, but I don't, you know, I don't see anything sort of inherent in um, providing legal services that couldn't necessarily be disrupted. I mean, the way that things are done, you know, there's a way that lawyers work, but, you know, that, that's only evolved because that's been what's most efficient for lawyers over the past half century, I suppose. But so, okay, so I, I, I definitely, I mean, uh, they're the classic examples, right? Like Netflix over Blockbuster, Uber over the taxi right. industry. Like right. that's, what, that's what classic disruption looks like. Some, something about the law, I, and I'm not, I'm not in the law as a unique and special snowflake camp, but it yeah. does seem to me that something about the law makes it unusually resilient to change. And yeah. and I, and, I, and it's not just unauthorized practice of law regulations. I think there's more to it than that. And I I guess I'm I'm wondering, well, like, what is it that you think is actually resistant to change? And does it just mean that disruption takes pl- does take place, but over a longer timeline? Um, yeah. So I mean, first of all, on the first point, I would say that um, you know the one thing that makes law difficult to disrupt is um, legal ethics. You know, and they're there for a good reason, mm-hmm. but you can't, you know, all lawyers will tell you, but like, I am not going to, you know, do something unethical, even if they think, you know, the ethics rule is, is BS, they're still not going to risk their license, or they're still not going to risk a bar complaint for doing something unethical. I mean, you know, to wit, we've for a long time wanted to have a, um, sort of a referral system on our subscription program. Well, California law or, you know, California legal ethics would prohibit something like that. So we can't. So it sort of slows down the amount of um, of innovation we can do there. And there are other ethics rules that I'm not, you know, I'm not criticizing the ethics rules in any way. I'm simply saying is that they exist. And as a lawyer who wants to innovate, or even someone who's not a lawyer, 
who wants to change things, you have to take them into account. You have to take into account those ethics rules. And they do sort of uh, put a damper on innovation. Yeah, I think, I mean, and and I want to walk back my initial, like, disruption is bullshit comment, because I, I recognize it's that's just hyperbole. But, um, yeah, I, you know, I, there are longer term trends shaping the legal industry. But mm-hmm. but I don't see anything that's just going to sneak up and mug the law practice industry. You know, like I don't, it's more like nobody did online legal research and then a decade or two later, everybody did online legal research. Yeah. Which like you could argue that's disruption, but it, it's the, it was honestly it was the same companies were printing the books as managing the website. So it didn't really disrupt right. anything. And I, I kind of feel like the way lawyers practice law is obviously changing. Yeah. It has changed, will change. It the way we get clients, the the type of volume we handle, all that stuff is changing, obviously. But I don't see any indication that lawyers aren't going to be involved. Um there, there's maybe some suggestion that drastically few lawyers will be involved, but I'm not even sure I think that's true. Um so I, I wonder if it's more just evolution than disruption. Yeah, it, it could be. I mean it could be that it's evolution. I mean I think that you know, because law is a highly regulated industry, it's going to be really hard for someone who's not a lawyer to do to do anything, to, to disrupt anything, because you can't, like, I've heard people, like, you know, a lot of people have come to me, you know, they're not lawyers, and like, oh, I'm gonna, I want to do this disruptive thing, um, you know, for legal services, and I'm like, great, but that's unauthorized practice of law, you can't <laughs> right. do it, like, it's, you know, it's not available, like, you know, I would have done it already if it was possible, and I think a hundred other lawyers would have done it, or a hundred other people would have done it. Um, so you run into that. I mean, even LegalZoom, which, you know, has, has run into that issue in, in a number of states. And, you know, again, I'm not sort of taking a side on that or, or whatever. I don't really care. But my point is, is that that's something you can run into. And I also think that, you know, because you have to have a law license to provide legal services, I think lawyers would need to disrupt um, the legal industry themselves. And, and I think there's, you know, which is an argument for lawyers, lawyers learning to code. Right, right. And I, I think that's the thing, or at least being familiar enough with code to sort of, you know, partner with somebody else who can who can help with that disruption. But, um, you know, and I think also, you know, you have to have your hand in the legal market to understand, okay, how does the legal market work today? And what can be done differently? I mean, you know, imagine if, if you know, Uber wouldn't have, have gotten, or, you know, wouldn't have been available if, they, you know, if they said you can't give someone rides for pay. If you're not, if you don't have a taxi license, you know, I mean, I know that some cities and states say that, but, you know, I don't think it's that, you know, I think they've they've found ways around it. So I think in order for disruption to happen, you have to have someone who can sort of find ways around the rules without sort of going over that line that's going to get them in big trouble and have them shut down. You know, maybe there's some other obstacles too. When I was at um, Codex at Stanford last year, AI was obviously a hot topic, but I heard from some of the companies involved that it's hard to recruit talented engineers to work on AI because um, law is not sexy and it's yeah. it, there's not a lot of investment money flowing into... I mean, there there is there are some success stories, but there isn't a ton of venture capital flowing into legal startups. And um, and so, there's an obstacle there that there is just isn't a whole lot of energy being put towards it. I've gone to a bunch of hackathons uh, over the years uh, and I'm amazed at how talented law students are at solving problems that don't need to be solved. Um, <laughs> and so, you, you know, there's a lot of, there, there seems to be some, at least some energy and effort being expended on things that don't need fixing. 
Um, right. and, and maybe this maybe this touches on something else we wanted to talk about, which is maybe lawyers just aren't innovative enough, and there isn't enough incentive for non-lawyers to innovate. I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, I would, you know, again, I think I'd push back on lawyers not being innovative enough. I mean, I think most people aren't innovative enough, you know, quite <laughs> frankly, you know, whether whether they're a lawyer or not, you know, and that's just, you know, maybe human nature or whatever. I can't, I can speculate. But um, I think, you know, in terms of like investment in legal, um, I think one of the issues is, is that, you know, a lot of legal startups that I see out there, they might have a great product. And, you know, I actually use a lot of the legal tech software that's out there and, mm-hmm. you know. I, I try to be an early adopter as much as I can, A, because it helped me in my practice, and B, because I want to sort of support people who are doing cool things. Um, but, you know, most of them, I, I mean, I can, I don't know if I can think of any company that's doing anything truly disruptive. Yeah. Um, and by disruptive, I mean what we were just talking about, where the structure of the industry will change, where like three big law firms will go out of business because this company, you know, came up, or, you know, a hundred medium-sized law firms will go out of business because because of this company, you know? So if you think of things like, um, you know, uh, Netflix, how many video stores went out of business? Many. How many chains went out of business? Blockbuster and, you know, whoever else was selling uh, or renting DVDs. Um, you know, so none of those companies will do that. You know, they, they make, make useful products that must sort of help in, in, in practice, but it's never going to turn into, they're never going to turn into billion dollar companies that disrupt an industry. And so I think for venture capitalists, they're looking for like 10x or more return. Right. You know, they're not looking for incremental improvements which are great, but they're not going to invest in something that sort of optimizes a practice. They're not, they're not going to do that. They don't, you know, there's no point. They might be like, yeah, it might be valuable, but you know, we'll make back, you know, two times the money we put in, which isn't their business model. And like 10 years ago, practice management software was really exciting because it was moving to the cloud, yeah. but the cloud has won. I, and maybe you could argue that there's been some disruption of cloud-based practice management software over um, old, old school desktop managed practice management yeah. software. But and that's true, but it wasn't disruption in the legal industry. It was disruption in the no. software for lawyers industry, which didn't change a thing except what tools lawyers used. Uh, maybe more lawyers have practice management software today, but and you know now mostly what you have is a mess of. It feels like every two days somebody's launching a new practice management product. <laughs> but yeah, um, it's good to have choices. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, even with something like practice management software, and you know, we love our practice management software as much as you can love the practice management software, honestly, there's no, there's, there's nothing disruptive about it. I mean, it's, right. it's the only thing disruptive is that, you know, rather than, you know, paying two, $3,000 to install the software on our computers, we're just paying that money over the course of a year or two years or whatever. Disruption doesn't mean implementing slightly better productivity um, schemes. Right. It, <laughs> that's, that's, right. It really that's barely even evolutionary. It's, it's an improvement and you may feel a, a big improvement in your own practice as a result of it, but it's not disruptive. Yep. Yeah. And people will pay for it. And, and I think <laughs> it's a slight improvement. I think that the technology, honestly, the, the technology that has the most potential for uh, disruption. And, and by that, I mean, honestly, disruption is, it will mean, you know, companies go out of business, like law firms go out of business because they cannot right. compete. So I think AI, has the biggest potential there, you know, I mean, still you know, potential right now, though, right? Certain, I mean, it's, yeah, let, let's yeah. engage in a little unsupported speculation about the future of law. Yeah. Um, speaking of AI, um, what, what are the trends that you see shaping the future of law practice that you think are going to make things interesting over the next, say, 10 to 15 years? Yeah. Well, I mean, just, you know, just like I, I just mentioned a minute ago, um, I think AI is number one. Yep. You know, I, I think that, uh, machine learning, um, you know, natural language processing. I mean, I think 
honestly, like, you know, right now it might take a lawyer, you know, let's say two hours to review a contract or whatever. If you can get a piece of software that does it in 10 seconds, now that's disruptive. You know, that's mm-hmm. not an incremental improvement. That's actually a qualitative improvement, you know, where, um, you know, instead of having to employ a lawyer for a day to read through contracts, you might have a, a computer system that does it in a minute and, oh, and in fairness, might like, have the same or better results. Yeah. And, and in fairness, like document review, um, due diligence reviews, that sort of thing, um, if anything has been and will continue to be disruptive, that's at, at yeah. least teetering on the brink of disruption if it hasn't been already. I, I mean, you're right. Like com- computer assisted review um, is potentially huge and could yeah. disrupt a, a sector of the legal industry, which will have huge ramifications for big firms that have based their business model on, you know, milking young associates and contract workers for all exactly. their worth. So and that's true. Yeah. That, that could That could reverberate. Through, through big law, I'm not sure it has a whole lot of relevance for small firms until, as you say, you can essentially plug a contract into a, uh, a website and have it spit out all the advice so your client doesn't even need to talk to you. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, or, you know, my thing is, is and what my experience has been in terms of being a lawyer is I think that what clients value is the actual conversation with a lawyer, like the actual sort of human connection that you have with somebody else who's an expert on, um, you know, on legal matters and, you know, really what we're selling sometimes. And I, I kind of say this as a joke. I say as a lawyer, my job is to sell happiness, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, um, because that's what we're and doing. does everybody we're laugh to, you at you know, or help. give you really a skeptical look? <laughs> they, they, yeah, they do. They, they, you know, for that and for a variety of other reasons. But, <laughs> but I mean, but you know, it, it's kind of like a little bit of truth in there, you know, in the sense of, you know, what they're not just looking for a document sometimes. They're looking for, okay, I'm, you know, with our clients at least, I'm trying to establish a business. This is a dream of mine, you know, like, and and I'm trusting you to help me. And so Mm -hmm. to have, you know, that trust being given to you and then sort of reciprocating by helping them do something that they're trying to do, that's what they're really paying for. You know, they're not really paying for the document. So like advice, counsel relationships come up a lot when lawyers talk about the value of what they do that can't be replaced for computers. Right. And, and I, I agree that that is potentially there, but I think most lawyers vastly overrate that value in their own practice. Right. I mean, like maybe when LegalZoom went out to, so, so now, now LegalZoom is actually partnering with law firms because it sort of reached the limit of what it was presently able to do with its document automation stuff. But in doing so, they went around and and checked the net promoter score for a ton of law firms. And it found that like most law firms barely get above zero, which in net promoter score (laughs) world means your clients are not happy. Um, It means means they aren't referring people to you. It means they they aren't promoting your firm. Um, And so, um, I think most lawyers are paying lip service to that. But I mean, your typical, what what your typical client relationship looks like is you make somebody come to your office, which probably means taking time off work mm-hmm. or um, paying for, your, you know, figuring out how to get your daycare for your kids, taking sure. a different bus, wandering around town until they find your office in the office park or in the section of yeah. downtown, trying to find it in the building, sitting down in a uh, in a probably not very exciting conference room, having a boring conversation for an hour with somebody who's looking, talking down at you the whole time or speaking right. words that you don't understand. And then you don't see them again and they take your money. And then maybe you have another, maybe you meet in somebody else's conference room that is equally, um, e- equally uncomfortable and, and boring and drab. 
Uh, and then that's it. That That's the entire client relationship for most lawyers is a couple of meetings. Well, and a couple of work. Yeah, it is. It's terrible. And yeah. that's not a relationship. And and is it any wonder that that's just not going to sustain people past, a, you know, over a website? People aren't going to pick a, that kind of a legal relationship over a website, I don't think. Right. Well, and I, I think that, you know, one, one of the things that, you know, just talking about our firm and I, and I think other firms, I mean, I'll tell you something. We haven't met probably 95% of our clients. So how do you provide a better relationship that way then? Just, you know, I think phone conversations work. Um, I think being responsive to, to questions, responsive to email, um, you know, being responsive, you know, on the phone. Like we make it really easy for our clients to set appointments with us. So, you know, they can just go on our calendar and say, hey, I want to talk to you guys tomorrow at 3.30. And then, you know, we call them. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, so what we're trying to do is take away a lot of that that sort of friction where, you know, you don't, I mean, you can come and meet us anytime. We have an office and we have an espresso machine and, you know, you can come by and we'll make you a coffee and talk. But, um, you know, most people, I think they just, you know, I think like you're saying, I mean, yeah, they don't, they wouldn't really value the experience of coming here. They don't really get anything. Yeah. Uh, most people, some people want to meet us face to face, you know, just because, and, and we enjoy that. But I think for most people, I think you're right. I think that they want sort of, you know, the instant um, internet experience. And I think that as lawyers, it's important to figure out how to deliver that while still being mindful of ethics and, you know, sort of providing quality legal services. And that doesn't work for all practices. I mean, I know that I'm biased because um, we do a transactional practice, whereas in litigation, I, I think you have to, you know, you have to go places, you know, whether that's the court or mediation or arbitration or deposition or, or whatever. I mean, there's no way around that, I don't think. Um, no, but get, I mean, getting but, back to trends, it sounds like um, one of the trends is that, that you're citing is maybe, maybe it's a, a refocusing away from selling documents and on actual yeah. valuable client service in a way that removes obstacles and is convenient and that people love. Um, so you, you keep the lawyers, but you get rid of the right. stuff that people hate. That's not very high tech, but no, but no, I take your point. It's incremental. Yeah. It's incremental and it's, and it's affected by technology, but yeah, it's not, none of that's disruptive. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, but it's, I think what people expect. I think that's, you know, even though it's not disruptive, it's good business these days. I yeah. think that, um, you know, it meets people's expectations to have that option of like, look, I don't want to come to your office. I don't want to go to downtown and find parking. Uh, <laughs> if we can just talk on the phone about this, yeah. Um, you know, or if we can do a document signing online or whatever, let's do that. Um, I think people enjoy that. But yeah, I mean, and it, and it could be that, you know, with the rise of things like AI or other sort of technologies that might make lawyers more efficient, it might be that we have a tenth of the attorneys, but those attorneys are focused more on the client relationship than they are on sitting in an office reviewing a document for four hours. You know, maybe, I mean, maybe to, to back it up even higher, maybe what the trend is, is that the balance of power is shifting back towards clients, even at, uh, even in consumer legal services like family law and, and small business transactions mm-hmm. and IP, because um, for a lot of reasons, right? You've got AVO, anybody, and, Avo people feel very it's very polarizing, but yeah. regardless, it it's lets people rate lawyers according to the experience they've had, sure. and it's it's easy to find a bunch of different lawyers to call using the internet. Um, it's easier for lawyers to talk about how they're different and and to offer different types of services. So, um, you know, maybe maybe the reason that lawyers don't have any incentive to have anything other than. Um, inconveniencing clients during the day and having them, forcing them to come to drab meeting rooms is because there's 
there's not a whole lot of competition that that gives you a benefit if you don't do that. So yeah. uh, maybe the bigger trend here is that clients are getting some power back and that will force lawyers to shape up. And honestly, that that would be pretty disruptive. If the, av- if the average yeah. consumer of legal services has the same sort of clout as the average Fortune 500 company when it comes to choosing a lawyer, that would be pretty huge. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, obviously it's not going to be evenly applied. I mean, no. you know, for <laughs> I think... Um, you know, people, you know, uh, you know, my generation, I, I think, you know, a lot of my clients are my peers and they really expect, you know, and that's what we try to deliver. They expect that we can work completely on the phone or over Skype or whatever. Whereas, you know, I'll talk to lawyers who maybe are, you know, maybe 20 years older than me and they have no need. They have no need to do that because, you know, let's just say they're an estate, estate planner who's been, you know, working with a client for 20 years. That client will still come in and they still actually enjoy spending time together. Um, you know, I often say that, like, I've noticed a lot of the best lawyers that, that I've encountered don't have a website because right. they've had, you know, the same clients for 20 years. But, you know, they get all their all their referrals via word of mouth. And so, um, you know, whereas me and, and attorneys who are sort of, you know, my age or my generation, we have to get out there and sort of provide a different service. I, I think that, you know, for older lawyers, they might not need to. And there are a lot who do. Although, you know, I don't want to say that they don't. There are a lot who do. Although, so I, I've offered up this anecdote a few times, I think maybe even on the podcast, but my financial advisor, um, we, we were going, he's a friend too. We were, we were riding our bikes uh, a while back and he was saying that he meets with a ton of his clients um, using FaceTime. Uh-huh. And I was like, Oh, sure. I guess you're starting to pick up younger clients. And he said, no, the age thing is a total red herring here. Right, um, right, you're right. They were all people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s who um, had iPhones because they were easy to use and because they wanted to spend more time with their grandkids. Sure. And so, um, so it's, it is, it's a little bit of an error sometimes. I, I mean, I take your point that yeah. once you have an established practice with an established system and relationships, you don't really have much incentive to change. But there are a lot of opportunities to bring a more high tech style of practice to uh, an older demographic. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you is, do you see any anvils for the legal industry? Like, you know, in, in, in uh, Wiley coyote roadrunner cartoons, uh, there are always anvils dropping out of the sky, usually misdirected at the coyote. But um, like, is there anything that could just be an anvil that drops on the head of lawyers? What do you think that would be like that, that truly is comes out, almost out of nowhere and is just disruptive as hell and the legal industry never looks the same after. Yeah. I mean, gosh, if I, if I, you know, if I knew, I think that would be <laughs> helpful, but I mean, I, I mean, honestly, I, I mean, I'm waiting to see, you know, I'm honestly waiting to see what the impact of AI will be because, you know, again, like, like you're saying, if, if by the legal industry, you mean, you know, sort of established law firms, if it turns out that you can review a contract in 1% of the time and do just as good or better of a job, now, if you have an office with 500 attorneys in it, you're going to be looking around and being like, well, you know, now you, you'd actually be competing toe to toe with a, you know, a, a law firm with five attorneys. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know, they, they could do the same amount of work. That is, I mean, that would be, that, that would be hugely disruptive and that would be a huge anvil. I mean, I don't know who it's aimed at. I don't know who <laughs> the anvil right. would hit. Um, but I think that, you know, honestly, it might be that, you know, small firms have an advantage. I mean, obviously, you know, small firms are not going to be able to compete for, you know, the giant clients like, you know, Chevron or McDonald's or whoever. But I think that, you know, most of the market is up for grabs. You know, we'll, we'll sort of see what happens in the next 10 years. And I think that's what's going to be really interesting. 
John, especially when I have somebody on the podcast who's uh, a bit of a tech geek like we are, uh, I always like to know what are your favorite uh, pieces of software, hardware, um, whatever. And and feel free to list the common ones as well as the unusual ones. Mm-hmm. What are your favorite tools? Well, I mean, my, you know, one of the tools I really enjoy, and I think that we've gotten a lot of use out of in our law firm, and I, and I feel like you guys have talked about it on the podcast before, is uh, Zapier, you know, which is the, oh, yeah. you know, the, 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 the platform or the software, the product that um, sort of allows you to tie together different things. So Gmail can be tied to Clio, can be tied to Slack. Um, Slack is also useful. We really like Slack for sort of in-house communication. Do you use it with clients? We do not use it with clients. We use it for in-house. Basically, what we do is we have that sort of, you know, we use it for internal communication, but we also use it for like getting reporting, you know? So like, um, you Mm -hmm. know, if a new client signs up with us, we have a Slack channel that tells us, hey, this person just signed the agreement and they're ready to go. Um, you know, or, you know, if a payment comes in, we have a channel that talks about that. So we, that's what we use it for. So those two pieces are really nice. Um, we also, there's another, uh, you know, another piece of software that we use. It's called Smith.ai. It's a call software, sort of like Ruby, but, you know, they sort of answer it. It's a virtual receptionist and, and it's really good. You know, we really like that. Um, and is, then is there any AI in Smith.ai? Because it is .ai, but I'm not clear on whether or not there's yeah. any artificial intelligence involved. That I don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, we should probably find out. I mean, I, I don't want to mislead people to think that it's this you know, AI system that handles your call. Maybe all the receptionists are in robot costumes. Yeah, that could be it. You know, and, yeah, it, it, you never know. But then, I mean, of course, you know, there's, there's the basics, you know, like, um, you know, we like, you know, we, we use Clio as our practice management. It's, you know, we like that. And, um, you know, it's, I, I think everything that we use is sort are of... You, are you on Macs or Windows PCs? Uh, Macs, Macs, definitely. All of us are on Macs. Uh, it's just easier to set up and configure. I've been a Mac person since like 1992, so cool. um, you know it's it's great. What else? Any any uh, what what apps can't you live without on your phone? Um, usually, what what apps that I you know that I have that I look at the most you know in terms of what law practice. Um, I, I like the Clio app. That one's really good. Uh, I like any note taking app. I, lately, I've sort of um, you know I don't know why it took me so long to realize this, but the voice dictation is really good. So you know if I want to draft an email or even a blog post, I can actually be like driving around and like talking it and it gets it pretty accurate. And then when I get back to my office, I edit it and I can post it. It's great. So if stuff like that's helpful. What's your, what's your note taking app of choice? Um, I would just, you know, I can either just use the microphone thing and put it in Gmail. I might email myself or I just use like that built in notes thing that is uh, in, uh, in the iPhone. I'm an Evernote user, but I'm starting to think I'm the last one alive. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, Evernote's cool. I just, I, I just never really got into it. I never, I never quite, um, I don't think I, I think I probably got like 20% into it and then just sort of stopped, but it seems like an interesting program. Anything else I, we should, uh, we should send people off to check out. Um, I think, I mean, I, I think that's it. I mean, I feel like everything else that I would mention are, are things that either people already know about or that, uh, you know, you guys have already talked about before. So thank you so much for being with us today and talking about why lawyers should code or, or not, um, disruption or, or not, and uh, speculating uh, without any support with us about the future of law and last but not least about anvils. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Make sure to catch next week's episode of the Lawyerist podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast or legaltalknetwork.com. 
You can subscribe via iTunes or anywhere podcasts are found. Both Lawyerist and the Legal Talk Network can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play or iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said during this podcast is legal advice.